And we're going to continue today in Jonah chapter 3. But uh, before we get going in, I, guess what? I've got another fish story for you. How about that? Where's Alton at? Alton, I've got one. I think you might even be the source of this one. So uh, I, want to, I got another story. There was this old farmer. And uh, he was known in his uh, county for always coming in with uh, the big trophy fish. Uh, it's like every time he went out, every tournament he was in, he was always coming in with this trophy fish. And well, there was this new warden who was in town and he began to get suspicious of this old farmer. And so he kind of went up to him and he started to ask him, like, well, what kind of bait are you using? How, how is it that every time that you, you go fishing, you come back and you win the big trophy fish? How do you do it? The old farmer just calmly replied, he says, I'll tell you what. Next morning, why don't you just meet me here and we'll go out on the lake together. So the next morning, the game warden meets the old farmer there and they get in the boat and they go out to the middle of the lake. Game warden's kind of watching and the older man, he just reaches into his tackle box, pulls out something about, about six inches long, looks like a real big candle. He lights it, throws it in the middle of the lake. And all these fish just surface to the ground. He picks out his net, kind of boats around, and he picks out the biggest one, pulls it in the ship or in the boat. And the game warden, he is going ballistic. He says, how can you do it? You know how many laws that you've broken? You know, do you know what you're doing? And the old man just didn't really pay attention to him. He just reaches into his tackle box again, lights a piece of dynamite, and hands it to him. And he says, you going to fish? Are you going to keep talking or are you going to fish? Now, that's a fish story, but you know what? The reality is uh, Elizabeth's grandfather used to be in World War II. And uh, he told us a little story that at the end of the World War II, up in the mountains of France, they didn't use dynamite, but they used grenades. Used to lop them into the lake, and there was their fish catch. So I don't know if any of you have heard Alton, you've never done that, have you? Not recently. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for your honesty. Hey, Jonah is more than a fish story. Right, Jack? It's more than just a fish story. It's a testimony of the character of God. It's more than just this fish which we called grace in chapter 2, but it's about God's grace. It's about God's mercy. It's about His compassion. It's about how God loves us and how He'll lovingly discipline us. And He loves us so much that He'll graciously pursue us and go after us when we rebel. It's a testimony of our God. That's what the book of Jonah is about. We're going to dive back into this story back here in Jonah chapter 3. When we last left Jonah, remember Jonah had just been barfed back up on the beach, right? Remember that? I said that just for you kids, all right? He had. He was covered. He was nasty. He comes back up on the beach. And we're left there. And we're left wondering what's going to happen next. Is God done with Jonah? I mean, yes, I mean, God can forgive him. He can rescue him. But is, is God done? I mean, is he really going to use this rebellious prophet again? I remember Jonah had some, made some vows. Remember that? So we're left hanging. Is, is Jonah going to fulfill these vows or not? And so in Act 3 of our story, in verse 1, look what, look what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. 
Now, the first thing that jumps off the pages of Scripture to me is that now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Those those first nine words are the exactly the same as in Jonah one, two. But it's, it's the next three is what jumps out at me. The second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And as I read those, those are words of grace to me. A second time. I don't know about you, but perhaps you have wondered, is God done with me? Maybe some of you are thinking, you know, to be honest, Matt, I've I've done a lot worse in running away from God than Jonah ever did. Can God use me? Is he done with me? I mean, is there really a way that God can use me again? I mean, okay, God may forgive me, but will he use me again in his plan? Will he do that? All I can tell you is that I know that God is a God of second chances. That God is a God of grace. God is a God of second chances. And no doubt in my life, God is a God, and perhaps even in your life, a God of numerous chances. Answer God. Our God has a history of bestowing grace and giving second chances. Remember Abraham, the, the, the father of Israel? That brother was a liar. Twice he lied and put his wife's life at risk. But God gave him a second chance and he used him. Remember Moses? Moses, the, the one who led the Israelites out in the great exodus from Egypt? He was the killer. But God gave him a second chance. Made him wander in the wilderness for a while, but 40 days, years later, he came back and led the people out. He's the God of grace. Remember a guy named Peter? Remember that guy? Denied the Lord three times. Three times. But at Christ's resurrection... When, he, when the, the ladies came to him and he told his, them to have his disciples meet him, and he singled out one, one disciple in particular, and Peter, he said. God's a God of grace. Remember a guy named John Mark? He abandoned Paul and Barnabas on the mission, the first mission trip. Remember that guy? Would he ever be used again? just so happens that John Mark was used to write the Gospel of Mark. Our God is a God of second chances. He's a God of grace. You guys remember the story of, uh, has anyone here seen the movie Seabiscuit? Any of you kids? All right. Obviously, I haven't either. But I read about it. I read about the story of Seabiscuit, and there was this man, his name was Tom, and he was, a, he was an old trainer of horses. And there was this man named Mr. Howard who was beginning to invest in horses and he was looking for a trainer. And he was interviewing Tom here. And he noticed how Tom worked with all these broken down horses. And Mr. Howard, as he was interviewing, he said, why do you, why do you invest? Why do you uh, help these broken down horses? And Tom said this, you don't throw away a whole life just because it's banged up a bit. Well, Mr. Howard went on to uh, hire Tom to train his horses. And as time went on, Tom hired this second-rate uh, jockey. His name was uh, John Red Pollard. He's hired him to ride Seabiscuit. 
And as he was in one particular race, and one thing we need to know about, uh, about uh, this, this, this jockey was that he was also blind, but he didn't tell anyone about it. He was blind in one eye because he was afraid if he told anyone, they wouldn't let him race. Well, this came to bear. There was this race in Santa Anita. And because of, of, of Red's limited vision, in one particular race, he allows a competing horse, Rosemont, to make up the, the, the side of the horse and pass Seabiscuit. And at the end of the race, Tom, the trainer, is so, so upset that, as, that he comes and he wants to fire. He wants to get rid of Red. And he keeps pressing, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And Red finally blurts out and he says, because I'm blind in one eye. Well, Tom is still furious, and he goes to Mr. Howard, the owner, and he says, he kept pressing him, he says, we need to get rid of this jockey. But to his disappointments, Mr. Howard says, I want to keep him. And Tom is dumbfounded. He demands the reason. And Mr. Howard states, you don't throw away a whole life just because it's banged up a bit. Guess what? That's the heart of our God. Just because you and I have been banged up a bit because of our own makings and our own failures, God just doesn't throw us away and throw us aside. But when we turn to Him, He desires to pick us up. He desires to use us again by His grace. In fact, one of the best definitions that I've ever had was from my Greek professor on what is grace. He said this, grace is the permission to get up. That's what it is in our life. God's grace not only saves us, but in our failures, it comes and it picks us up and uses us again, even if we're beat up a bit. Amen? Well, the commission goes forward here in verse 2. He says, arise, go. The force here of these two verbs is, it's go now, go immediately. Don't wait, Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. He says, go, Jonah. And proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Now, if you were, had not read through Jonah before, if you were perhaps the first audience that heard these words, this is a point of tension in the story. Because you don't know what's going to happen. What's Jonah going to do? Here he is again. God's calling him to go to that city that he didn't want to go to in the first place. So I want you to feel the tension with me. Feel, what, what's he going to do? What's going to be the response? Will he obey? Will he keep his vow? Or will he run off this time around the Mediterranean? Instead of in it, he'll go around it. What will he do? Verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He kept his vow. He followed the Lord. See, this is exactly the effect that the grace of God should have upon us. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. See, the grace of God is not meant just to free us to do whatever we want. It's actually meant to free us to do what God has for us to do, to live righteously, to live godly, to carry out his mission. And Jonah makes that choice. He's learned from the grace of God. He's, he's learned from being inside the belly of a fish. And he responds. 
Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. If you read through the whole book of Jonah, four times the book would emphasize how great the city of Nineveh was. Nineveh was a city of great splendor and richness. It was also a city that was feared mightily. It stood on the eastern bank of the Tigris River in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. It had a river that, that ran through it, and archaeologists who studied it, and by the way, at one time, uh, Nineveh used to be a point of contention. The skeptics would say the Bible is not true because we can't find any such city as Nineveh. But guess what? They found it. And the archaeologists will tell you that this city it had, uh, two, it two, it had an inner wall and had an outer wall. This inner wall was said to be 50 feet wide and 100 feet high and 8 miles in circumference. Imagine that. It's pretty big. And outside the wall, there were small cities and fields that encircled the larger. This was, this was the, the suburbs of the city. And some believe that the circumference of that portion may have been 60 miles around. So when we hear the greatness and why maybe Paul or I mean, why uh, uh, Jonah walked through it three days, perhaps it was either to walk around it or perhaps it was is the time that he spent going through and proclaiming the truth that God had for him to bring to Nineveh. But three days walk, he would go into this great city. Into this great city, he would bring a great message, but it was a simple, clear message. Look at verse 4 with me. Then Jonah began to go through the city's one-day walk. And he cried out and he said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It will be overthrown. That word overthrown is the same word that is used of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. To speak of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just think with me a minute. How would you like to be the prophet that has to bring this message to Nineveh? Would you like to be that guy? This strange, funny-looking prophet. Some say his skin might have been bleached white because of the gastric juices in the fish. I don't know. But this odd guy who probably had an odd accent, he comes into this city, and he, and he starts spouting this message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Kooky, right? What will God do with this? He walks through this great city. He's basically telling them, hey, you guys are going to be destroyed. You're going to be obliterated. You're going to be disciplined severely by God. His wrath is going to be poured about on you. We're just given eight-word message. That's all it is. We wonder, did he share more? Did he explain what happened to him? Did he speak of God, perhaps? I don't know. But all we're given is these eight words. Matter of fact, in the Hebrew, it's actually five words. And some of you are saying, Matt, take a clue, okay? We would take five words. But that's not all. Look what he says here. He says, yet 40 days in your city will be overthrown. It's a message of judgment. It's a message of wrath. But that's not all it is. It's also a message of grace. You say, how? Because God didn't have to stay yet 40 days. He didn't have to give him that time. He didn't have to say, but yet 40 days. 40 days for Nineveh to respond. Often our world tells us that it's not loving to speak of a place called hell. It's not loving to say that God would send someone to hell. But the reality is, it's the truth. And people need to be warned of that message. 
You and I have been given a message similar to Nineveh. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a part of delivering that gospel, the good news, is beginning with the bad news. That the wages of sin is death. There's a payment to be made. And then the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a message our people in this world that they need to hear and that we need to give. So how did Nineveh respond to God's message through Jonah? Look at verse 5 with me. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Do you get that? And the people of Nineveh, they believed in God. They just didn't believe about God or didn't say, yeah, we, we hear what you're saying about your God. But they believed in God. And their belief led to action. Fasting was a means of seeking mercy from God. To put on a sackcloth was an outward sign of, of humiliation. An outward sign of repentance in their lives. According to one commentator, sackcloth was what the poor and the slaves customarily wore. Thus wearing, it depicted the entire population viewing themselves as needy before God. As need of God's mercy in their lives. And it, it viewed themselves also as subject or humbled before God as a slave. That's what they're saying here. The people from the greatest to the least of them, they, they took this serious. This has the beginnings of serious revival amongst the pagan people. Then look at verse 6. The government get, gets wind of it. Look at it here. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, that is, things got back to the man in charge. Things got back to the king. And when the word uh, reached the king of Nineveh, what do you think he's going to do? Is he going to put down Jonah? He's going go get that man. Let's put him in prison. Let's kill him. And look, look what God's word says. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the, this, this man was most likely... The, the ruler of the Assyrian Empire, one of the greatest empires at that time. And here he is, he gets up off his throne. He takes off his royal robes and all those things. He puts them aside. He puts on the, the, what the poor and the slaves wore, the sackcloth. It was a coarse garment. He puts that on. He leaves his, his throne room and he places himself in the ashes or the dust. He too believed in God. He changed and he was repenting before God. So I think about this. So I think about this five word message that was given. You know what's going to change the social environment of our country? You know what's going to change the injustice and crime and perversion and all kinds of wickedness in our country? It's not going to come from Washington, D.C. It's not going to come from legislation. And I'm not saying in any shape or form that we should influence our government or be involved. But it's not going to come from that. Change and transformation in our country is going to happen when God's people get busy proclaiming God's word 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God takes that word and he, through the power of his Holy Spirit, he changes people, brings them to a place of repentance and they turn to faith in God. That's what's going to bring change and transformation in our country. Not legislation. Can I get one amen on that? I just want to know if you're awake. That's all. You, you can respond to me, okay? And we have that message. We have the gospel in our hands. And our call is to proclaim it to whomever God puts around us. Can you imagine how powerful effect this would have? Can you imagine? Because we got to remember the first readers of this letter would have been the king or would have been the people of northern Israel. A, a spiritually apathetic people. A king, a series of kings who were not following the Lord. Can you imagine when they heard and read this story? When they hear this, this pagan king and these people repenting? Can you imagine the conviction that should have been happening in their lives? But look what this king does. Verse 7, he issued a proclamation. And it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, he brought the others along. Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Now you think, that's weird. All right? Can you imagine just driving around Waco and seeing cows covered with sackcloth? What kind of kooky church is that? All right? But in essence, what was happening was a practice where it wasn't so much the animals that are repenting, but it showed the spirit of the owners of those animals. That they would go so far to show the repentance that they would bring their own animals to sackcloth and fasting. Then notice what the king calls them to do. And let men call on God earnestly that each man may turn or he may repent from his... Look, notice this. It's a personal pronoun. His wicked way from the violence which is in his hands. Not someone else's hands, but his ways, his hands. The king's getting personal here. All right. This is not some just general confession. All right, we're all been sinners. Let's we're, we're sorry. It wasn't like that. The king's getting personal here and he's saying, no, I want you to look into your life and the violence and the wickedness that is in your hands. I want you to repent of it. Turn away from it. And Nineveh was a vile place. They worshiped many gods. They were known for treating those who they, they, they conquered in unthinkable ways. Unthinkable ways. And a king knows it. He knows how guilty he is. He knows how guilty these people are. And he says, guys, get specific, specific about your sins. One of the things I took away from this is, oh, how we often complain of the sins of others. Oh, how we so often look around and look, look, look at them. But let me give you guys a secret for all of us. You know where revival starts? It starts with each of us individually. That when we look at the sins in our own lives, we repent and then we turn to God and his grace. That's where it starts. Now, again, this king knows his people are guilty and he knows that all they can do is, is cry out and, and repent. But, but look what he says next. I love this part. I love this, this verse 9. Look at the first part there. You might even want to circle this part. He says, who knows 
God may turn. That is, he may change his mind about the coming judgments. And, and then he says, and relent. He may turn and relent. This word relent is a, is a different word than, than the word for repent. It's the idea, uh, it carries with it the, the idea, the connotation of compassion, of feeling sorrow. So in essence, this king is saying, who knows, may God may turn and, and, and have compassion on us and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. I wonder where he got this from. Can maybe that as he heard the message that yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, that you maybe that as he was reading in there, he said, I, I take this God serious, but he does say 40 days. Maybe there's a chance. Because the reality is God didn't have to give any such warning. He would have been absolutely just in pouring down his wrath immediately. By the way, God would have been absolutely just in pouring out his wrath on you and I the very moment that we sinned. But he didn't. He's given us mercy. He's given us grace. And this king is, is calling on this God and he's urging his people to call on this God who he hopes there's mercy. That judgment is withheld from them justly for their sins. Look what it says there in verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned, that is, they repented from their wicked way, then God relented. He had compassion concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let me just tell you something. God is eager to relent when people repent. God is eager to pour out His mercy and His compassion when people will turn to Him in repentance. And you and I have that message to give to people. We have the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that can tell them who the one they are to turn to for this grace, for this compassion. God is just and He takes sin seriously, but He is compassionate as well. And we'll talk more about this next week in Jonah 4. Our question is, so what do we take away from all this? Here, when we read this story, say, Matt, yeah, this is a story of a pagan people who repent and turn to God. But most of us here, though not all, surely, but most of us here, we're, we're, we all, we, we know Christ as our Savior. And, and you're, you're right. And you no longer have to fear condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God won't pour out His wrath on you. So what, so what do we take away from this message? I want to give you two things. That's all, just two things I want to give you. And the first is this. The first application is this. We need to give people the full truth of the gospel. And what I mean by that is, don't leave out the warning and don't leave out the grace. That is, they have to realize that they're sinners first. Deserving of the wages of death, eternal separation from God, before they truly grasp and see their need for the grace of God. So give them the full truth of the gospel. It's one of the reasons I love the ministry of CareNet Pregnancy Center. These folks, they meet women and men in, in crisis moments of their lives. They meet them at, at times when they're in great need and they, and they meet them there. 
That this the money that we're giving for the baby bottles is going to be used to provide counseling and, and materials and, and different things to them in these moments of crisis. But you know, they also don't fail to share the full gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, they sit down with these ladies and in great love as they're meeting their, their physical needs and emotional needs, they also tell them about their great, greatest need. And that is the need for forgiveness of sin and freedom from the wrath of God that's found in Jesus Christ. We've got to give them the full truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing is this. The second thing is this. It's for us personally. Do a repentance check in our own lives and then move forward in grace. You say, Matt, well, this is about a repentance of a pagan people. I'm not a, I'm not a pagan anymore. I'm in Christ. As I said this, uh, I, I was, I was, we have to be reminded again that the original audience is. It's the people of God, this northern kingdom of Israel, who are in the midst of this time where they're in great spiritual apathy. And they weren't following God full-heartedly or at all. I also discovered this week in my study, I didn't know this before, but since about 200 A.D., this passage in Jonah 3 has been the afternoon reading in synagogue celebrating the Day of Atonement. And it is those Jews since 200 A.D., they saw this as an example for them uh, that they need to read and reflect on this as an example of, of repentance. And I think it's an example for us as well. What ought a repentance truly look like in our lives? And why we're not trying to escape the wrath of God? I don't know about you, but there's areas of spiritual apathy in my life. And those are areas that I have to have ongoing repentance in my life. See, God not only wants us to turn to Him in salvation by faith, but He also wants us to live and to walk by faith and repentance as well. That when those areas of spiritual apathy creep up in our lives, we don't just smooth them over and say, oh, that's not that bad. At least I wasn't a Ninevite. But we take it seriously and we say, no, God, that, that is wrong. I will humble myself before you and I will turn from that. And I will depend on your grace to pick me up and to move me beyond this. So we need to do a repentance check and move forward in the grace of God. It was a bright Sunday morning in 18th century London. But Robert Robinson's mood was anything but sunny. All along the street, there were people hurrying to church. But in the midst of the crowd, Robinson was a, a lonely man. The sound of church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was, was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years, though, since he set foot in a church. Years of wandering, years of disillusionment and, and gradual defection from the God whom he loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and, and feeling cold inside. Then Robinson, as he's standing there in this crowd, he hears this clip-clop, clip-clop. And a horse-drawn cab is approaching behind them. Turning, he lifts up his hand to flag down the cab, and, and the, the cab stops. But he sees it's, it's occupied, and he begins to start to wave it on. But the woman inside says, no, stop. And so the cab stops. 
And she says, sir, I'd be happy to share this carriage with you. And then she asked Robinson, are, are you going to church? And Robinson was about to, about to decline. But then he paused and he said, yes. I, I'm going to church. And he stepped in the carriage and he sat down beside the young woman. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman began to exchange introductions. And as she heard his name, she, she began to have this flash of recognition that came into her eyes as he stated that name. And she said, that's an interesting coincidence. She reached into her purse and she, she withdrew a small book of inspirational verse and opened it to a ribbon bookmark and, and handed a book to him. She said, I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could, could it be? He took the book and began to, to read it, nodding. He says, yes, I, I wrote these words years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. And she's saying that in excitement. The Robinsons barely heard her at all. He was just so absorbed in the words he was reading. They were words that would be one day set to music into a, a great hymn of the faith, familiar to generations of Christians. There they were these words, Come thou fount of every blessing, to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Robinson's eyes flipped to the bottom of the page where he read this. Prone to wander. Lord, I, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He could barely read these last few lines. And tears were brimming in his eyes. And he said, I wrote these words. And I live these words. Prone to wander prone to leave the God I love. The woman suddenly understood what was happening. She was quick to say this. You also wrote, here's my heart. We'll take and seal it. You can offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson in that moment, he turned back his heart to God and walked with him the rest of his days. Today, I'm here to tell you we have a God of grace. And that when he points out sin in our lives, and no matter how long we've been wandering and getting away from him, if we will but repent, he's eager, he's eager to, to pull us back closer to him again. God is eager to relent and pour out His compassion when people repent. Amen. Dear God, we come and we give You praise. We thank You for this message from Jonah, chapter 3. Lord, there are some here that are perhaps like those Ninevites. They have never responded They've never turned from whatever else they are trusting in and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. 
And Lord, my prayer for them today is that they will, will, will come to a place of repentance and put faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I also come and realize that there are many, like myself, that uh, are perhaps in places of spiritual apathy. And Lord, my prayer is that we will be reminded of the God of grace that we have who gives second chances. But in the same moment that we realize that and believe with all our hearts, we may not just merely overlook our sin, but we might actually repent of it. And we might turn from it and allow the grace of God to change us and transform us for your glory. Lord, we thank you for stories of Robert Robinson. And certainly that story is in many ways true for all of us. And so, Lord, we come to worship and to praise you and to thank you for your grace. In the name of Jesus Christ that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Let's sing a couple of verses that have come now found. Come now, fountain, every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never cease. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me Step. Yeah. 